You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Morning, everybody. Thank you, Jesse, for reading that. Um, just for your information, each week we're going to begin the Bible reading from verse 1. Um, this morning we're going to focus on verse 5 to 11, but we're going to begin at verse 1 all the way through, through the eight weeks, so that by the end of it we're reading the whole chapter, and that's because through repetition, I believe, we can become th- uh, more familiar with what you know I've referred to as the, the best chapter in literature. Um, miss you guys, by the way. We really are. We were talking this morning about just how much we miss having you here with us. And um, particularly, I think this morning, um, to celebrate that clearing of the debt, it would have been really nice to have a few high fives and hugs, um, or at least some cheering um, in the congregation. Uh, maybe we can catch that up at some other point. But we do have a lot to celebrate. And the fact that we have achieved what was to be honest, at the beginning of the year, kind of a, a bit of a pipe dream and something that um, Petra um, had the thought of in faith um, and something that we were willing to go with, um, praying that God would do something to see that come to fruition really ahead of schedule is incredible. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with debt. Um, debt is not sin, at least not in this context. Um, Having a mortgage in order to buy a house or taking out a a car loan or something is not sin. I think you should minimise it where you can, but it's not sin. The reason that this is so, you know, and maybe in in years to come we might jump back into debt um, because we discern that there's a good reason to do so, but really you should know that for the, entire, the entirety of the life of this church, we have been carrying that debt that is now clear, and it wasn't good debt. It was a, it was a, a chain around our neck. And, um, and to be free of it now is just amazing. So thank you. Thank you for those of you who, who paid, those who prayed, those who did both. Um, thank you so much. There's so much to be thankful for. But we're going to jump into Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to begin by just um, giving you a little bit of context for the whole of the book of Romans. And I just wrote this in on Friday after I spoke to Steve Torek, who has very graciously agreed to take over a lot, the bulk of what Petra has been doing in the finance department of our church up until this point. Another huge answer to prayer that we would have someone who's willing to step up and take on uh, so much responsibility. So you hopefully have met Steve and Joe and the kids over, over the last kind of year that they've been here. Um, and Steve has been in finance for, I don't know, 20-something years and just brings a lot of know-how and just... Is it, the, the whole thing is a huge blessing and we'll talk more about it once we're back in the building together. Um, we can pray for him and commission him for that role. But anyway, I was talking with him uh, very socially distanced out the front on the road on Friday as he came to pick up some finance folders and stuff um, to get stuck into that work. And we were just sort of lamenting the, what we perceive as the divisiveness of the, 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 the age that we live in right now and the divisiveness um, uh, that's in the air that we breathe really around different opinions, political and otherwise, um, around COVID-19 and vaccinations and things of that nature. And, and we began by talking about the divisiveness in general in the community around us, but it wasn't long before we were talking about the division that, it, that is perceptible in churches and that churches themselves are being divided along political lines or, you know, different perspectives on vaccination and uh, I haven't heard anything that would concern me too much from within our community though I'm often the last one to hear so um, so so we need to keep praying about this Um, but I have heard through colleagues from other churches um, members of other churches stuff that would give me nightmares Um, churches dividing over these issues uh, now, here's my take for what it's worth. Uh, and this is not, thus saith the Lord. But as far as I can see, once you take into account the sweep of history, which is something we fail to do all the time, 
um, this what we're going through now is not some extraordinary set of circumstances. This is something that has repeated itself throughout human history, this kind of thing that we're facing. We have a particular context which is different from those who have gone before us. Uh, we have a world wide web um, and social media and things that they didn't have in years gone by. Here's what I'm confident to say. Um, COVID-19 is not the, some kind of plot of Satan. Satan is not behind this pandemic. Um, I've heard people say that he is. I think you give him too much credit. He's not capable of something like this. Um, the vaccination that you receive is not the mark of the beast. Uh, it will not, if you get vaccinated, it will not prevent you from entering the kingdom of God, which I've heard numerous people say. Um, a devastating misnomer. Um, I tell you where, where Satan is in the midst of this, though. He is all over, like a rash, all over the division that it's causing in society and in the church in particular. He loves that stuff, like a pig in mud. He loves that stuff. And so here's where the context of Romans becomes very important for us. As we are threatened, Red Door Church, threatened by the kind of division that will destroy some churches. The context of Romans is important because the reason Paul wrote Romans was to take a, a church that was divided and unify it in the only thing that could possibly unify it in any meaningful way. That is, he wanted to unify it in the gospel. He knew it was pointless trying to unify the church in Rome on political lines or cultural lines or any, anything other than in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So Paul never went to Rome, well, he eventually got to Rome, that's where he died, that's where he was killed, um, but he didn't start the church in Rome. Unlike, you know, when we studied 2 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians, Paul was writing to churches that he had planted himself, that's not the case in Rome, he didn't start the church there. Uh, it was started by a bunch of Jewish converts who had gone from Jerusalem to Rome, started a church there. And the, what, what happened in uh, about AD 49 was the seedbed of this division that he's writing to overcome. So in AD 49, the, the Emperor Claudius, Roman Emperor, probably the most powerful person in the world, Claudius decides one day he doesn't like Jews anymore. And uh, he just, that's just, if you're the Emperor of Rome, that's just something you can decide. He could have said, I just don't like people with freckles anymore, and, and, and could have gone through with the law that he put in place um, in AD 49, which was to expel every Jew from the province of Rome. Um, and the reason, it's very interesting, we have the historical document to verify this, the reason he gives for expelling the Jews is he says, on account of Crestus, um, which most scholars agree is just a mistranslation of Christus, which is the Latin for Christ. So on the basis of the, this Jewish belief in the Messiah, Jesus, he expels them all from Rome. They're persona non grata. They have to leave. Now, that, that carries on for about, I don't know, five or six, seven years. Um, and during the time that the Jews are expelled, some Roman people become Christians and move into the Church of Rome. And so you now you've got people from a very different culture, Roman culture, Gentile culture, who are Christians living in and worshipping in this church in Rome, but they're not Jewish Christians, and that's, there's a big difference. And so then sometime later, say AD 56, when Paul's writing this letter, by this point, the Jewish Christians have moved back into the church, and they've moved back into a church that is now occupied by Roman Christians. And during that time that they've been expelled, the Roman Christians have metaphorically moved the furniture around. Right? They've, they've, they replaced the pews with individual seating and there's a smoke machine now. And, right? and they're doing communion with juice instead of wine, whatever. 
the, the, Jew, the Jewish Christians have come back into a church that is, is looking very different, occupied by people from a very different culture. And so there is this instantaneous division, which threatens to completely divide the church. Now, Paul writes them with this zeal as a Jewish convert to Christianity himself and a, and a missionary to the Gentiles. He writes to them with this zeal that they would remain unified. At all costs, he does not want to see the, the, the church of the Jews and the church of the, of the Romans. He wants to see a, a church unified in the gospel. And so he writes to them. He writes to them partially to, to let them know that he's on his way to them and that he plans to go to Spain and he wants them to, to help mobilize his mission to Spain, one that he never ends up being able to fulfill. He's, he's killed before he gets to it's part of the reason he writes to them. Part of the reason he writes to them is to encourage them generally as brothers and sisters in Christ. But the, his ultimate aim is to unify them in the gospel. And that's why he writes 16 chapters of, of, of pure gospel to them. That's why he begins in chapter 1 by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. All, all people, all who believe. And it's the basis of this chapter that he writes, the most pure gospel gold that he can fashion. Why, why, why have I taken all this time to go through this? It's because I believe it's so imperative for us right now to reestablish the basis of our unity while it's under threat because of cultural forces around us, because of Satan's insidious work among us, it is imperative. Red Door Church, this is our time. This is our time to show the world what it looks like to be unified, in spite of the fact that we have different political persuasions and views on the vaccine and whatever else. In spite of all of that, this is our time to show the world what it looks like to live in unity, unity in the gospel. So pray. I tell you what, every prayer meeting that happens throughout the week, and we are adding more prayer meetings all the time, it's going to eventually, I promise you, it's good, the day is going to come where it's just all day, every day, all right? And, and, and as we add more and more prayer meetings, in each of those prayer meetings, this is one of the main things we're praying for, unity in the gospel, the kind of unity that shines like the sun on a, on a darkened and divided world. This is our chance. So with that in mind, let's jump into Romans chapter 8. Last week we saw that the law, that the Old Testament law of God was good, but it could never save us. It was good, given by God, but because it was weakened by the flesh, that is by us trying to keep it, it could never fulfill its purpose, it could never save us. That's why in verse 3 of chapter 8, he said, what the law could not do, could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. So what the law couldn't do, God did. That's one way of saying the gospel. What the law couldn't do, God did. What we couldn't do because we're weakened by f the flesh, by corruption, by sin, God did. And he condemned sin in the flesh, the result being that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the beautiful truth in Romans 4 now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that's a wonderful thing to come to terms with, a beautiful thing to set our hope on, but it's not the end of the story. It doesn't end there. It, the, the, the story of our salvation doesn't end with justification. Justification being the, the, the legal declaration, you are not condemned. You are forgiven. You are saved. You are in Christ Jesus. That declaration isn't the end of everything. The, the declaration of justification is an invitation to sanctification. I say all those big words again. This is why I went to Bible college. right? The declaration of justification is an invitation 
to sanctification. That declaration, you are in Christ, there is no condemnation, that all of the, the condemnation that you deserve has been poured out on God's own Son in its fullness so that there's none left to be poured out on you. That itself, that declaration is now an invitation to you, Christian, saved by grace. It's an invitation to you now to walk in the, the process of sanctification. Sanctif- it's just a big word that means being made more and more like Jesus. To be sanctified is to be made holy, and this is the rest of your time. Declared justified, righteous, through faith alone. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Faith alone in what Jesus has done and now invited into a life of sanctification where we participate with the Spirit in walking out our faith, being made more and more like Jesus. Transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And that's what this passage this morning is about. It's about that walking out of our faith. It's about that participation in the sanctification of our very being. Today's passage is about how we live now. How now shall we live, as I think Francis Schaeffer said? How now shall we live? Now that we've been justified, how now shall we live? And so we begin in verse 5. Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now, I feel like I have to jump on something Immediately, as soon as we start hearing that language about flesh and spirit, we need to jump on a myth. This myth has uh, took root very, very early in, the church, in church history, maybe in the first few years, because uh, it's a myth that's born out of uh, Greek philosophy, specifically Platonism. Right? So the, the philosophy of Plato, which is grounded in this idea that um, that life is dualistic, that, that, that life is, is good and bad, that life is, um, is uh, secular and sacred. Uh, and in the Greek thought, the, the body is bad. The body is yuck. The body is dirty. That's where you find all kinds of the, the yucky stuff that we encounter. That, all of that lives in the body. But the spirit is pure. Uh, this is where some people who have very m- a bad misunderstanding of the Christian life think, well, yeah, I'm saved now, but what I'm really hoping for is the day where Jesus zaps me out of my body and I can go up and live in, in, in the clouds and you, you know, fly around like, a, like an angel, um, pure, you know, set free from the, the, the jail that is my body. That is a, that is, that's, that's Platonism. That's not Christianity. Uh, Paul didn't believe it. As a good Jew, he believed that the body was a good gift from God. You know, when God made it, he said, this is very, very good. This is, this is top notch. This is like the best thing I've made. So creation itself, this is why Christians should be at the forefront of creation care. It is good, made by God, a gift to us. This is why you should care about whether you're in kind of keeping your body in good shape or not. It's not so that you can impress yourself in the mirror or the, the, you know, the ladies down at the... I don't know. I'm, I'm, well, it's been so long. I've forgotten. But it's because your body is good. It's a gift from God. Temple of the Holy Spirit. Here's a little test. Because this is really insidious and every single one of us believes this to some degree and we need to kind of iron it out. It's part of our sanctification. Uh, if you have in mind that the, the, your kind of default way of thinking about things is in sacred and secular, like, you know, this building is kind of holy and spiritual, 
but McDonald's across the road is secular and dirty. Now, at one level, that might, I hope that's probably true. Like, it, I, I'm, I'm guessing McDonald's is grimier, greasier, and dirtier than, than this place, but that's not what we're thinking about, is it, when we think about those two things. We're thinking, this is more godly than that place. It simply isn't the case. It simply isn't the case. The kingdom of God is not confined to holy places. Thank God for that. Here's a little test. I only just thought about this a couple of days ago. I think it's a good test. If you look at what the Christians are said to have spent all their time doing in the book of Acts, in Acts 2.42, you get this little window into the four things that they were really big on. Okay, Just test yourself here. Um, here's one way of reading this verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Hmm, that's good. Apostles' teaching. That's the Bible, the scriptures, um, the apostles were the, 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 the preachers of that church. So, yep, that's definitely doing some holy work there. To the fellowship, I mean, that could go either way. The fel- you know, you could just be talking about the footy or you could be talking about, you know, like praying for each other. So let's just we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Their fellowship was pretty, pretty holy. Um, breaking of bread, what's that about? Doesn't sound very sacred. Oh, unless they mean communion. They must mean communion. Okay, communion. Yep, that's, that, that definitely that's spiritual. And prayer, definitely spiritual. Okay, so, so, so you see what... By the way, breaking bread, it's not talking about communion. I mean, they probably broke bread when they had communion, but it's just talking about eating together. The book of Acts talks about this regularly, about how like the mission of the church was to provide food for people. They run into trouble when they don't have enough food to share with the, all these thousands of converts that are coming in, Right? If you read that verse and you get to the breaking of bread bit and think, well, not as holy as the rest, then you've fallen into this platonic trap. All of that stuff that they're doing is holy, spiritual, sacred. All of it is good and given by God. So now, what is Paul talking about then? If he is contrasting the flesh and the spirit... And he's not saying your body is bad, but one day you're just going to be a fluffy spiritual being and that's good. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? Well, here's what he's saying. When he talks about the flesh, he's talking about everything that's corrupted by sin. Everything that bears the, the bruising and the brokenness of the fall. So to some degree, this is everything. To some degree, this is everything. This is the great tension that we live in. The creation, you as a creation, is good, given by God, designed to glorify him, but it's broken. It's fractured. Not destroyed, but fractured. It bears the marks of corruption. What Paul is talking about when he talks about the flesh is this corruptibility When he talks about the spirit, he's not talking about some good essence that you have that will be released when you die. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the third person of the Trinity. He's talking about God. So we need to shake ourselves out. This is not flesh equals natural equals secular and spirit equals supernatural equals sacred. He doesn't have those categories and neither should we. The flesh is that which is corrupted by sin. The spirit is the Holy Spirit of God himself. Now, the way Paul distinguishes between those who belong to the flesh and those who belong to the Holy Spirit, the way he distinguishes those two is by their mindset. This is really interesting. By their mindset. So verse 6 to 8, let's read that. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. 
those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, what distinguishes those who belong to the flesh, belong to corruption, belong to death and sin, from those who belong to the Holy Spirit of God, what distinguishes them here is the mindset that they have. Not that you are because you think, but that you think because you are. It's not that you are because you think, oh, I'm thinking fleshly thoughts, so now I'm out, I don't have the Spirit. But if I think really, you know, spiritual thoughts, then I belong to the Spirit. It's not that, it's the exact reverse. You aren't are because you think, you, you think because you are. What you think, your mindset, is born out of your nature. Your very nature. Your nature determines your mindset. We were watching, as we are wont to do, watching uh, nature documentaries. This is when Judah or I have the remote. This is what we watch as a family. It's just nature documentaries. Um, and we were watching one yesterday. And, uh, and uh, um, the night before, for family movie night, we had watched uh, a cartoon movie, like animated movie. And um, it really irritates me in animated movies that the bad guy is always a carnivore. Um, and that irritates me because it's like it sends a message to the kids that like if something eats meat, it's evil. And I want to just, I want to, that, that is not, that's not true, my friends. Um, and uh, it particularly irritates me because it was my dream for a while to become a zoologist and I wanted to specialize in the study of carnivores. Uh, I had this whole plan laid out before me, uh, for myself, and then my year 11 biology teacher laughed at me when I told him that, and it kind of went downhill from there. True story. Anyway, I, love, I just love carnivores, and so I don't like it that they are unfairly discriminated against in movies. Um, anyway, we, we were the next day watching this documentary, and there was this ma amazing nighttime footage in India of a leopard coming into somebody's house, grabbing their Jack Russell and taking off with it. And um, this distressed my daughter greatly, who is <laughs> distressed by anything like that. And so my, my kind of way of responding to that distress was to let her know that the, that the leopard isn't mean for snatching the Jack Russell. He's acting out of his nature. Um, he's, not, he's not having um, kind of uh, um, discriminatory thoughts about Jack Russell's that, that is prompting him to want to snatch it off the porch. He's simply responding to his instincts. Jack Russell's are made of meat. Leopards eat meat. Leopards eat Jack Russell's. So it is with those who live either according to the flesh or who live according to the spirit. Our nature will determine our mindset. On this issue of the mindset, I think John Stott has this really helpful way of describing. He, he says in his, his uh, commentary on Romans, um, he said, the mindset is a question of what preoccupies us. I'm going to read this slowly. The mindset is a question of what preoccupies us, of the ambitions which drive us and the concerns which engross us, of how we spend our time and our energies, of what we concentrate on and give ourselves up to. All this is determined by who we are. Whether we are still in the flesh or are now by new birth in the spirit. It is really helpful for you at this point to do a little audit of your mindset. When it comes to the things that preoccupy you, the ambitions that drive you, the concerns that engross you, how you spend your time, your energies, 
what you concentrate on, give yourselves up to, those things, are they reflective of someone who is by nature in the flesh or someone who is by nature in the spirit? And again, you've got to quickly turn off your Platonism. This is not a question of whether you spend all your time praying or spend all your time making money. That's a false dichotomy. That is not sacred and secular. The question is, as you are spending your time making money, what is motivating you to do so? It's what Jesus keeps bringing us back to all the time in the Gospels. It's not an issue of what you're doing. It's an issue of the heart that motivates it. At heart, you might say, in your nature, what is motivating your mindset? These are big questions for us to be asking ourselves and absolutely like essential in a kind of cataclysmic, eternal perspective kind of way. These are questions we must wrestle with and make adjustments as the truth is revealed to us. We'll get to this at the end, but by the way, don't trust yourself to do an audit on yourself. Don't be a Western individualist you will just lie to yourself, okay? Do it in community. Be in a small group. Ask a couple of close brothers or sisters, what, tell, me, tell me about myself. Now, those who are in the flesh, those who are by nature belong to the flesh. By the way, those people who live according to the flesh, whom God loves deeply, whom God created and loves deeply, those people for whom we should have a, an, a, a, like a irrepressible zeal to share with them good news, that might, they might be able to, by grace, live according to the Spirit, inherit eternal life. He'll get to that in verse 11. Right? Those people who are at this point living according to the flesh. Those people relate to God in three ways. They relate to Him with hostility and with unsubmissiveness to the degree that they cannot please Him. That's verse 7 and 8, right? The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And if you're someone in our congregation who has a, a kind of conversion story, you came to faith as an adult, it's not all of us, but some of us have that kind of before and after experience. You know this to be true. You can identify in yourself, in your very nature, your very being, that you were hostile towards God. There was no desire to submit to what he told you to do. And as a result, you are unable to please him. But what about you? What about you, Christian? What about you, believer in the Lord Jesus? What about you, living according to the Spirit? You who have been born again by water and the Spirit. Are you any different? Forget Platonism. We have our own Australian culture. It's egalitarianism at all costs. And, and it will kind of pressure us to say, no, we're no different. There's no difference between us and unbelievers. We're all the same. Not true. Paul makes a very firm distinction here. For those who, of you who have been born again, those of you who have the Spirit dwelling within you, the story is different. Verse 9 to 10. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. I think a better translation is something like indeed because the Spirit of God lives in you. So, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, because indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 
Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So this is what we've learned from Romans 8 up to this point. 1 through to 10. This is what we've learned. Being a Christian means being in Christ and it means having Christ in you. Being a Christian means being in Christ and it means having Christ in you by his spirit. You are in Christ, he is in you. Very intimate language. And this means you have a new mindset. Being in Christ, having him in you, means you have a different mindset, a different nature. The mindset of the Holy Spirit. That's the mindset that you now have. And what does the Holy Spirit like to do more than anything else? He likes to please God and give glory to Jesus. So having Christ in you and you being in Christ and having now a new mindset, a new nature, which is the mindset and nature of the Holy Spirit, means that you as well, you too, more than anything else, you desire to honour and glorify and please Jesus Christ. That's what he just said. That's the power of the gospel. Not just to save you from damnation. Not just to give you a whole pass into heaven. Much more than that. It gives you a new nature. It gives you a new mindset which is trained on glorifying, honouring, pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. Just... Everyone just look at me for a second. Here's what I know. The happiest people I know, the most joy-filled people, the happiest people on earth are Christians who are living according to the Spirit. Christians whose whole mind and soul and body is trained on walking in the freedom of the Spirit, living each day to please the Lord Jesus. We say it like this. We say that they live to make all of life all about Jesus. They're the happiest people I know. You know the unhappiest people I know? Not atheists, not unbelievers. The unhappiest people I know are Christians as well. And they're Christians who live according to the flesh. Why? Because they're constantly at war with themselves. If I belong to the flesh and live according to the flesh... There's no tension. I can do whatever I want and not feel bad about it because I'm not disobeying anyone. I'm not trying to please God. I'm not trying to live according to his law. I don't care about submitting to him. But the Christian who's been given a new nature, a nature that seeks to please God, who then lives according to the flesh, who is is constantly at war with himself. Hey, I know this from experience bitter experience it sucks you can't even enjoy the enjoyable part of sinning because in the midst of that fleeting enjoyment you have a conscience that is now by nature tuned into God's will and ways A conscience, a spirit of God pleading with you. Spirit himself grieved by your living according to the flesh. This constant tension where I'm at war with myself. The most unhappy people on the planet are Christians 
who live according to the flesh. This invitation into a life of sanctification, this invitation into a, a, a keeping in step with the Spirit is an invitation into joy and freedom. Happiness. My friends, the law meant death. God's good law meant death because it was weakened by the flesh, because of our incapacity to keep it. The law meant death. But the Spirit gives life because we have the Spirit within us and this new mindset tuned according to our new nature. Because we walk in step with the Spirit, we live according to the Spirit, now we can please God. Now we can live each day pleasing God. Living in harmony with the Spirit of God. I love the way that John Berridge um, artfully describes this in his poem. Sometimes misattributed to John Bunyan. It was Berridge, okay, I know. I don't want this to divide our church either, but it was Berridge. He, he wrote this, Run, John, and walk. Uh, run, John, and work, the law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. We are being invited into a whole new way of being a whole new way of living, living according to the Spirit. What does this look like? What does it look like to live now according to the Spirit? What does it look like to fly? Now that the Spirit has given you these wings, what does it look like to forsake the things of the flesh, the preoccupation with self-gain and my kingdom and fleeting pleasures, what does it mean now to fly? What does it mean now to, by the power of the Spirit, fulfill the law? Throw a few verses at you. Jesus himself in Matthew 22 said, as someone came to him and said, which command of the law is the greatest? He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and most important commandment. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And then in John chapter 13, he said to his disciples, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then Paul, in our book, Romans, in chapter 13, makes the same summary. He says, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Hmm, man, that is an enormous statement to make. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. What does it look like to fly? 
with gospel wings, to walk according to the Spirit, to fulfill the law. It looks like loving God and loving his creatures as much as you love yourself. That's how you are to occupy the rest of your days. Love God. Love one another. Man, we are, you know what? The rest of your life is figuring that out as you go. I'm not going to give a nice, tight little summary of that in the three seconds I have left of this sermon. That's something you work out in community with one another, in this church, in your small groups, your families, how to walk that out day to day. But we've come to the last verse, and this is the last verse of our passage this week, verse 11. He draws a line now from now, from this present day, this Sunday morning, October 10th or whatever it is, into eternity. In verse 11, he says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then, you who ra- then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. He has this enormous sweep of eternity in front of him. And he sees you, Christian, today. And draws a line from your life now, lived according to the spirit and on into eternity that same spirit who dwells in you now will never leave you or forsake you and that is your seal your guarantee that your life now resides in eternity in a new heavens and a new earth and until that day comes when you are folded into a beautiful new creation until that day comes we stumble I didn't want to leave off the sermon without stating the obvious. Until that day comes and all corruption is cleansed out of all creation, until that day comes, we stumble. We stumble. The gospel has given us wings to fly and yet we stumble. No one will live free of corruption until that day when the last trumpet sounds and the corruption is cleansed forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, read all about it. Until that day comes, until we hear that trumpet sound and Jesus comes to renew all things, until that day comes, we stumble. I like this from Bono from the lead singer of U2. This is how he's a a believer and this is how he describes his kind of stumbling sanctification. He says, your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I've heard of people who have life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people set free from addiction after a single prayer. But it was not like that for me. For all that I was lost, I am found. It is probably more accurate to say I was really lost and I'm a little less so at the moment. And then a little less and a little less again. That to me is the spiritual life. The slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals. Reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It has taken years though, and it is not over yet. Red Door Church, onward we stumble. Together we stumble. Knitted together by the unity of the gospel, in the unity of the gospel, where fleeting divisions of our culture can't touch us, knitted together in the unity of the gospel, inhabited by God's own spirit, inhabited by God himself. 
fulfilling the law by daily loving God and loving one another. Onward we stumble. And sometimes we walk and sometimes we fly. But always we are moving together, people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this beautiful gospel. It is gold. And I pray, you know I pray, and we continue to pray, that this gospel would knit us together, bind us together, that the unity we have would be on the basis of the gospel, never on the basis of political persuasion or socioeconomic status or skin colour or age, any of that shifting sand. That it wouldn't be on the basis of our views on vaccines, Shifting sands. Loving Father, please be gracious to us. Please mercifully us, mercifully bind us together in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And then, loving Father, please help us to walk and stumble and to fly together in the unity of the gospel. And over all of this, and as a full stop to it all, we say, please come. Please come, Lord Jesus. Please come and end the corruption. The corruption without and the corruption within. Please come and make all things new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.